Fool Me Once Shaman University is a proud sponsor of the Janana Shoe Podcast. To the end. God, I hate the bus. I feel like the smoke it emits. Smoke fills my lungs, heart, and head like shame lingers on my skin. My cigarette says, my human, letting air slip from my mouth, move cords in my throat, but only in the slightest way. Cover your mouth, open your sickness, a cough of angst and poor decisions made. Vomit is a cleanse of body and mind. Purge, protect, feel held like love. Is everything ever fine if everything's always fine? I can find going, I can go finding, expect an end. Confusion facing placement, identify observation, oval light, overturned order, if light were a blow. I'm not aware in the evening, dawn is gone before I rise, I fall from the sky and for the sky my eyes see more, internal loss of sight does not blind me. I only am with you. You, me. Where are we? I've known lonely love and love to be lonely, lone love, lone love, to develop. We need to be alone with others. Others are always. The souls sit different. Destruction determines unless it's empty, always alone around others. I am isolation. Often encased in exclusive universal experience, enjoy empty employed, does the universe define as I do it. If always ends always, easily accept anything, begin again, end something, where to begin begging for beginning. Hey turd burglars, I'd unfeaked, fusted, and found God. For those of you that don't speak white privilege, allow me to translate. I had a good Thanksgiving, despite the rest of my week being the way that it was, straining my neck from sleeping on my head weird, getting banned yet again from a different media platform and thing that I liked a lot. I still was able to enjoy my Thanksgiving and to give thanks for that, for enjoying it, because that's what you do on Thanksgiving. It's really the only way to do it properly, and there's no delicate way to explain the finest delicacy, assed potatoes, where you throw potatoes up in a nice ass, and you use that ass to mash the potatoes, and if you really want to get wild with it, you can get some heavy cream up in there, or some milk, melted butter, whatever you use. Salt will be incorporated naturally, so go light with the seasoning on that, and of course, pepper to taste. I don't eat ass potatoes. Come on, I have more respect for potatoes than that. I remembered that my family used to have this tradition, though, where we all watched my grandpa eat the turkey's ass. His chin would get all greasy, and everybody would, like, talk about it and laugh about it, and only just now did I remember and realize how insane that was, especially since they were, like, the wholesome people in the family. We weren't even supposed to swear around them or anything. And yet, my grandpa made this tradition where he would bury his chin in that turkey's ass as it got all greasy and covered in all those dark meat juices. And the rest of the family was, like, watching him. And they would, like, build it up and talk about it long before it happened. Like, there was talk about grandpa eating the turkey butt. 
And then, when it finally came time, like, rather than saying thanks and everything before the meal, we all just got quiet and watched Grandpa go to town on the turkey ass. Sharks. As usual. I thank you for the toothbrush. I was mad at Jesus on Thursday. Fifteen minutes to apologize? Sometimes I just like the way that things sound, and sometimes being oddly specific will make things a lot more interesting, but you always have to show. Rather than just tell, you always have to show. I've been wondering what the universe sounds like. What does the universe sound like? Or what does even my own city or neighborhood sound like? What does my mind sound like? Does any of it have a sound? Is it detectable? Is it determinable? Am I able to use my ears and mind? Or would a microphone and digital equipment be more capable of picking up and determining what that sound is? Until about three years ago, I thought that if a tree fell in the forest and no one was around to hear it, that of course it would make a sound. I didn't think that sound was dependent upon observation. However, I was informed otherwise that by definition, sound is being heard, vibrations being heard by a person or an animal's ears. Otherwise, by definition, technically, it is not a sound. As I've learned about recording audio, I've learned how many things you can do with it and that you have to do with it if you want people to enjoy listening to you speak for 20-30 minutes plus at a time. Everything from your equipment, your processing, all of it can and does influence the way that you sound and how people will hear you and listen to you. Your brain is actually able to do a lot of this stuff on its own, but for some reason, whenever digital technology gets involved with processing sound, we have to make adjustments, otherwise it can be confusing. That's why when old people have to get hearing aids, they have a lot of difficulty, especially in like a loud establishment like a restaurant or something, because it's just picking up all this noise, and it doesn't know how to separate it and differentiate it. And so you're just hearing a lot of noise that you wouldn't expect to hear, as opposed to just hearing those parts that you want to hear that you have intended and set up and structured your brain to hear. So with good audio recording, you've got to make sure that you're canceling out any extra noise or the sound of the room that you don't want. And you can do that by setting certain levels, by getting a noise profile. So your equipment and your processing is going to pick up on this specific decibel, this specific volume, this specific wavelength, and it's going to just not include it. And you can also pick up on the specific frequencies of your voice. Most times those are being processed through at least four different ways, the low end, the mids, and the high end, and people often make adjustments to that as well. So in addition to being able to cancel out certain noises you may hear, you're also able to focus in on and enhance other noises you may hear. And once you start doing that, that's where it gets interesting to me, and where I start thinking about the possible implications of what could be done with that type of technology and that type of thinking. Let's say the universe, my city, my mind, it does all have a sound. 
both independently and together, and my mind has been processing this sound as long as I've existed and around these same sounds or how they may have advanced and uh, changed with time. Then let's say that there's technology that is able to alter these sounds or to alter my perception and processing of these sounds. The possibilities of this would be endless. All the interference, adjustment, enhancements, everything could influence and alter. There are already plenty of ideas out there like this, like the world harp and all these other conspiracy theories going around right now, so we really don't need any more of that. I just thought it was interesting to think about what does the universe sound like? Or what would my city sound like? Or my mind, just on its own? What would it sound like? And then I was thinking, what if it could work the other way around? Like, if you could talk to your TV. Oh, it's not enough to get vitamin D from the TV? Now you gotta talk to the fucking thing, too? Yeah, let's just have TV do all the things in our lives for us. Let's just live staring at a screen. But no, seriously, I started talking to Dawson's Creek as I watch it. It helps me feel a little more social. It helps me practice riffing on people and things. And sometimes it's almost even like what I say does matter. Like last week with all the shit that I was talking, especially about the writing. This week, the show practically replied to me with some lines that I ended up loving. Hope dies last. Three words, and I can't stop thinking about them. There's so many different ways that you can interpret that. Hope dies last. Three fucking words put together that punch. Then there was this large portion of my life that I'd lived through and then learned and realized this is what I had been doing and continued living by it was all summarized and said so perfectly by this character that's a college professor about some literary work. He said, Flaubert believed that anticipation was the purest form of pleasure and the most reliable and that while the things that actually happen to you would invariably disappoint, the things that never happen to you would never dim, never fade. They would always be engraved in your heart with a sort of sweet sadness. Damn. You can't just drift over that one, or drift away from how fucking funny it was, spoiler alert, when Dawson's dad died. He was singing Drift Away with a fucking ice cream cone while driving, and the ice cream falls off of the cone. So he tries to bend down and scoop it up, and he drifts away into the lane of the oncoming traffic, and he fucking dies. It can be hard to drift away, and I think that's why we're so grateful when we find good writing, good stories, good TV, good music, whatever, is because it allows us to drift away. And those things that inspire us, that help us create things like that, that made us feel that way, it's hard to drift away from those things too. Like, I've been fucking so hooked on and into David Lynch this last week or two. I can't stop thinking about him and the type of thinking that he does and the type of work that he's created, especially what did Jack do? 
I love it. It's the, just this short film. It's only 17 minutes. It's on Netflix, and it's so fucking good. It's so much of what I want to be doing. I try to allude to those influences. I try to honor my inspirations when I am able to. I would like to share some of those at the end of the episode because I did go back through and find some of the stuff that I was exposed to when I finally decided to change the course of my life by taking community college courses. Finally, I signed up for creative writing about three years ago. It was fall of 2017, and in that class I did come across some stuff that had that type of influence on me that essentially set in motion what I'm doing now with writing and comedy and the podcast and everything. Where less. I remember who I was before, sitting in science. I am the silence, the first year I experienced the solo isolation on my own. I remember what I did. No one was watching. I always eagerly anticipated and wished with no god, no genies, no stars, no scientific process, no study of any subject could teach, create, an awareness to absolve inherently. A stupid, cheesy, plastic character-building quote caught my eye and instantly drained my lungs. Thirteen years of breaths taken just to raise my chest, shame-spoiled spine, guilt-gripping guts, breaking bounds like bones, ants of panic in my hive mind, toes tingle in terror. A heart upon a sleeve is a nice accessory. I turned my soul inside out and wore it like a suit. Who you are is what you do when no one is watching. Walk a thousand miles in my shoes and you can still feel the laces wrapped around my neck, my eyes catching everything inside and out as ultimate observation to never stray from the sound of my heart and always be who I am. I had never thought of that before. Who you are is what you do when no one is watching and that shit just like smashed my head, and it completely changed how I saw and did everything that I did. Growing onions and shit. Expression and exposure waged war even in my earliest years as I sat in my garden bedroom, TV light feeding parched for genuine reality to rain down on my dusty old soul looking out from the panes of my young eyes. When most people spoke, moments and manners mismatched, I'd watch these fucking people be shit all day, rage, sulking, swearing, self-loathing, until casually queried, How are you? Great! The expression is great as their ability to strain clenched teeth into a grimace of glee, four-year-old me wondered, How are you? Like that? Angsty and angry, I lacked words worthy of expressing what I wanted to expose. My soft voice, lacking depth, only amplified anxious attention to the TV in my room in all the ways I wanted to be. My garden withered, rotting with the bright, flowing, fluent, dynamic, diverse universe where a true introvert, content, quiet, would rather have teeth pulled than pretend. Of course, I didn't know these words or understand these ideas I felt. And once I knew and understood, resonant radio waves rippled through a universe of life. Twenty-four years later, to abstract art, play guitar, speak as I write, and still not fully express, still here in the same garden that now grows onions as layered as my perceptions. But I have no problem being exposed in any sense. 
I'd strip, cut myself open, whatever to show was inside me, but the marvel of modern medicine falls as short as I do. I'm almost autistic with addiction to sound, direction shooting into my veins, snorting lines of prose and smoking the finest rhetoric. I wouldn't medicate by, even try, if I was quadpolar to treat my obsessive compulsions to disorder using chaos to control and control to create chaos. Fuck. I think my garden's dying. Shriveled, drained, dry, petrified, my heart still in the hardened state. I've seen too much genuine reality and still have too far to go. The TV no longer nourishes. Should I ever express all elements I want exposed when moments and manners match, ability in unison is not what I fear most, but absolute effort, unreturned, unreciprocated, those resonant radio waves drifting out, over and through, no frequency, no frequency to match, the dichotomy of waves, only I can wave back to hello, goodbye, stuck in a life of try. Man, I have to talk to the TV more because I'm not talking enough and when I do my job, my throat just like starts to give out and give up because it's not used to talking this much because on my days off, I just like don't even really speak. Maybe I say a couple lines to my roommates, but other than that, almost entire days without speaking. Another social supplement that I had was my lobster cult. If you listen to that episode, I did join a lobster cult on Facebook, which was just the first thing that I had come across in a long while, where people were actually, like, using their brains, coming up with funny and creative ideas and sharing them, and it was just all that. It was all lobster-based, funny, creative ideas and people, and I loved it for that. Initially, it was just a like, but I came to love it, and it was consistently helping me get through the week, just seeing the awesome things people were posting in there. Even this one time, some dumb cunt wanted to post some shit about, can we call it the lobster goddess? And everyone was like, no, it's not about gender, you dumb bitch. It's just about a fucking lobster. And it made me so happy that she got shut down and shit on so fucking hard for that. I was so proud of the Lobster Legion keeping its integrity, not trying to just get swept up in some other dumb social justice bullshit that's going around constantly. That's what made me love this lobster cult, was that all the other political social justice bullshit going around, it didn't have any of that. It was just lobsters, and it was funny, creative shit that people were saying and expressing, and I loved it. And so when some other dumb cunt posted a fucking stupid lobster cutout painted like the trans flag or some shit, and I posted, this is offensive, and I went on to say that it shouldn't be about trans people, it's about fucking lobsters. I was still just maintaining what I thought was the common consensus of our cult. But unfortunately for me, this cunt identified or something as a them or was just into the trans movement in the way that people are into the trans movement. And she also happens to be one of the admins or something of this group. And rather than just take down the post or warn me or something, decided to just fucking ban me from this group. What I said wasn't even like a 
offensive. It was a joke, but I did stand by what I was saying. I thought that I was making a good point and the right point because everywhere else you can get your social justice shit. There are plenty of people pushing for the trans movement, and I wasn't even trying to put it down. I was advocating for the lobster movement as this is its rightful fucking place. And now, rather than just not liking the trans movement, I want to fucking destroy the trans movement. This has immediately made me a strong fucking advocate against that bullshit that I already didn't like and wasn't for. Now I want to fucking crush anyone that has anything to do with it. Fuck the trans movement and anyone that thinks that that is somehow a good thing because it is not. It is the ugliest, most self-righteous, entitled, cunt-fucking-piece-of-shit thing that I have ever had to observe or be around anyone trying to do with any type of anything like that. Fuck the trans movement. They have just moved to one of the biggest, if not number one, on my shit list because of this fucking thing. And not just because of me. Because of what that type of mentality means and how quickly people keep latching onto the balls of that bullshit and how it's just perpetuating all this ugly, influential behavior and ideology. You don't feel like your gender. I get it. I don't feel like who I am. I can understand that. But if gender isn't important, if you don't want to be identified as that, stop making such a big fucking deal about how people do identify you by. Just stop prioritizing. Live up to your own fucking creed, your unnatural bullshit. That was the thing with homosexuality was, one, I could understand homosexuality. It wasn't going against nature. I do believe that homosexuality is natural. I do not feel that way about trans people. I really don't. But I would still support them if they conducted themselves well, if they had the type of behavior and values that homosexuals do, who, as long as I can remember, were always loving, were always fun, were always proud. They never said mean, ugly shit or expected people to stand up for their feelings and all this fucked up garbage that the trans movement is doing. They were just like, hey, we're gay, we're proud. And that's it. The constant fucking glaring contradictions of this cunty ass shitty fucking movement is so infuriating. How much more it instills this division and hatred and all these other ugly feelings than it actually backs up or brings forth for these trans people with their movement and the way that a lot of these people that believe in said movement are conducting themselves because she still has several streams of support for her. She still has her trans community and everything that she's a part of. And now she gets to talk about that shit in a fucking lobster cult where it has no place. And she's taken away a place for me to talk about lobsters. I don't go to fucking bridal showers and talk about how pro-choice I am. In the same way, it doesn't make any fucking sense to talk about how fucking trans you are in a fucking fun lobster cult, cunt. Maybe that isn't the right thing to say, or way to say it. I've never felt good when I've gotten to a breaking point like that, but the trans movement just keeps pushing. 
yes, this upset me because it was something I loved and cared about, and that's what triggered this, but beyond that, this fucking movement keeps pushing in that same way, and I'm getting real fucking tired of being pushed by it. All right, all right, all right. That's enough of that. And enough of what I wanted to say for this week. So I would like to share some of this stuff from my creative writing class that I felt had a large influence on me moving forward with writing. Reverse. A lynching. Ansel Elkins. Return the tree, the moon, the naked man, hanging from the indifferent branch. Return blood to his brain, breath to his heart. Reunite the neck with the bridge of his body. Untie the knot, undo the noose. Return the kicking feet to the ground. Unwhisper the word Jesus. Rejoin his penis with his loins. Resheath the knife. Regird the calfskin belt through trouser loops. Refasten the brass buckle. Untangle the spitting men from the mob. Unsay the word nigger. Release the firer's fingers from its trigger. Return the revolver to its quiet holster. Return the man to his home. Unwidow his wife. Unbreak the window. Unkiss the crucifix of her necklace. Unsay, hide the children in the back, his last words. Repeal the wild bell of his heart. Reseat his family at the table over supper. Relace their fingers in prayer. Unbless the bread. Resend the savagery of men. Return them from animal to human. Reborn in the long run. Backward to the purring pickup. Reignite the Ford's engine. Its burning headlights. Retreat down the dirt road. Tires speeding backward into rising dust. Backward past cornfields. Past the night floating moths. Rescind the whiskey from the guts. Unswallowed, unswigged, the tongue unstung, rehoused the flask in the field coat's interior pocket, unbared the teeth, unwet the appetite. Return the howl to its wolf, return the shovel to the barn, the rope to the horse's stable, resurrect the dark from its heart, housed in terror, re-enter the night through its door of mercy. This next one's a bit longer. It's a short story, and the first thing I can remember reading where I was like, damn, I want to write like that. And I thought that I could. The Wavemaker Falters by George Saunders Halfway up the mountain, it's the center for wayward nuns, full of sisters and other religious personnel who have become doubtful. Once a few of them came down to our facility in stern suits and swam cautiously. The singing from up there never exactly knocks your socks off. It's very conditional singing, probably because of all the doubt. A young nun named Sister Viv came unglued there last fall and we gave her a free season pass to come down and meditate near our simulated Spanish trout stream whenever she wanted. The head nun said Viv was from Idaho and sure enough the stream seemed to have a calming effect. One day, she's sitting cross-legged a few feet away from a dumpster housed in a granite boulder made of resilient synthetic material. Ned, Tony, and Gerald, as usual, are dressed as Basques. In orientation, they learned a limited amount of actual Basques so that they can lapse into it whenever guests are within earshot. Sister Viv's a regular, so they don't even bother. I look over to say something supportive and optimistic to her, and then I think, oh jeez. Not another patron death on my hands. She's going downstream fast and her habit's ballooning up. The fake Basques are standing there in a row with their mouths open. So I dive in and drag her out. 
It's not very deep, and the bottom's rubber matted. None of the basks are bright enough to switch off the leaping trout subroutine, however, so twice I get scraped with little fiberglass fins. Finally, I get her out on the pine needles, and she comes to and spits in my face and says I couldn't possibly know the darkness of her heart. Try me, I say. She crawls away and starts bashing her skull against a tree trunk. The trees are synthetic too, but still. I pin her arms behind her and drag her to the main office, where they chain her, weeping to the safe. A week later, she runs amok in the nun-eating hall and stabs a cafeteria worker to death. So the upshot of it all is more guilt for me, Mr. Guilt. Once a night, Simone puts on the mermaid tail and lip-syncs on a raft in the wave pool while I play spotlights over her and broadcast, Button up your overcoat. Tonight as I'm working, the lights I watch Leon, sub-quadrant manager, watch Simone. As he watches her, his wet mouth keeps moving. Every time I accidentally light up the chlorine shed, the guests start yelling at me. Finally, I stop watching Leon watch her and try to concentrate on not getting written up for crappy showmanship. I can't stand Leon. On the wall of his office, he's got a picture of himself jello wrestling a traveling celebrity jello wrestler. That's pure Leon. Plus, he had her autograph it. First, he tried to talk her into dipping her breasts in ink and doing an imprint, but she said, No way. My point is, even traveling celebrity jello wrestlers have more class than Leon. He follows us into costuming and chats up Simone while helping her pack away her tail. Do I tell him to get lost? No. Do I knock him into a planter to remind him just whose wife Simone is? No. I go out and wait for her by loco logjam. I sit on a turnstile. The Italian lights in the trees are nice. The night crew is hard at work, applying a wide range of commercial chemicals and cleaning hairballs from the filter. Some exiting guests are brawling in the traffic jam on the access road. Through a federal program, we offer discount coupons to the needy, so sometimes our clientele is borderline. Once some bikers trashed the row of boutiques, and once Leon interrupted a gang guy trying to put hydrochloric acid in the main feeder. Finally, Simone's ready, and we walk to the employee underground parking. Bald Murray logs us out while trying to look down Simone's blouse. On the side of the road, a woman's sitting in a shopping cart, wearing a grubby chemise. For old time's sake, I put my hand in Simone's lap. Promises, promises, she says. At the road cut by the self-storage, she makes me stop so she can view all the interesting stratification. She's never liked geology before. Leon takes geology at the community college and is always pointing out what's glacial till and what's not, so I suspect there's a connection. We get into a little fight about him and she admires his self-confidence to my face. I ask her, is that some kind of a put-down? She's only saying, she says, that in her book a little boldness goes a long way. She asks if I remember the time Leon chased off the frat boy who kept trying to detach her mermaid hairpiece. Where was I? Why didn't I step in? Is she my girl or what? I remind her that I was busy at the controls. It gets very awkward and quiet. Me at the controls is a sore subject. Nothing's gone right for us since the day I crushed the boy with the wave maker. I haven't been able to forget his little white trunks floating out of the inlet port, all bloody. Who checks protective screen mounting screws these days? Not me. Leon does when he's the wave maker, of course. It's in the protocol. That's how he got to be sub-quadrant manager. Attention to detail. Leon's been rising steadily. 
since we went through the orientation together, and all told, he's saved three guests, and I've crushed the shit out of one. The little boy I crushed was named Clive. By all accounts, he was a sweet kid. Sometimes at night I sneak over there to do chores in secret and pray for forgiveness at his window. I've changed his dad's oil and painted all their window frames and taken the burrs off their Labrador. If anybody comes out while I'm working, I hide in the shrubs. The sister who wears the cat-eye glasses, even in this day and age, thinks it's Clive's soul doing the mystery errands, and lately she's been leaving him notes. Simone says I'm not doing them any big favors by driving their daughter nuts. But I can't help it. I feel so bad. We pull up to our unit, and I see that, once again, the Peretti twins have drawn squashed boys all over our windows with soap. Their dad's a bruiser. No way I'm forcing a confrontation. In the driveway, Simone asks, did I do my resume at lunch? No, I tell her. I had a serious pH difficulty. Fine, she says. Make waves the rest of your life. The day it happened, an attractive all-girl glee club was lying around on the concrete in Kawabunga Cove in day-glow suits, looking for all the world like a bunch of blooms. The president and sergeant-at-arms were standing with brown ankles in the shallow, favorably comparing my attraction to real surf. To increase my appeal, I had the sea shanties blaring. I was operating at the prescribed wave frequency setting, but in my lust for the glee club, had the magnitude pegged. Leon came by and told me to turn the music down, so I turned it up. Consequently, I never heard Clive screaming or Leon shouting at me to kill the waves. My first clue was looking at the control hut porthole and seeing people bolting towards the ladders, choking and with bits of Clive all over them. Guests were weeping while wiping their torsos on the lawn. In the handicapped section, the chaired guys had their eyes shut tight and their heads turned away as the gore sloshed towards them. The ambulatories were clambering over the ropes, screaming for their physical therapists. Leon hates to say he told me so, but he does it all the time, anyway. He constantly reminds me of how guilty I am by telling me not to feel guilty and asking about my counseling. My counselor is Mr. Poppet, a gracious and devout man who's always tightening his butt cheeks when he thinks no one's looking. Mr. Poppet makes me sit with my eyes closed and repeat, a boy is dead because of me, for half an hour, for $50. Then for another $50, he makes me sit with my eyes closed again and repeat, Still, I'm a person of considerable value, for half an hour. When the session's over, I go out into the bright sun like a rodent that lives in the earth, blinking and rubbing my eyes, and Mr. Poppet stands in the doorway, clapping for me and intoning the time of day of our next appointment. The sessions have done me good. Clive doesn't come into my room at night all hacked up anymore. He comes in pretty much whole. He comes in and sits on my bed and starts talking to me. Since his death, he's been hanging around with dead kids from other epochs. One night he showed up swearing in Latin, another time with a wild story about an ancient African culture that used radio waves to relay tribal myths. He didn't use those exact words, of course. Even though he's still... Even though he's dead, he's still basically a kid. When he tries to be scary, he gets it all wrong. He can't moan for beans. <laughs> moan for beans. He's scariest when he does real kid things, like picking his nose and wiping it on the side of a sneaker. He tries to be polite, but he's pretty mad about the future I denied him. 
Tonight's subject is what the Mexico City trip with the perky red-haired tramp would have been like. He dwells on the details of their dinner in the catacombs and describes how her freckles would have looked as daylight streamed in through the cigarette-burned magenta curtains. Wistfully, he says he sure would like to have tasted the sauce he would have said was too hot to be believed as they crossed the dirt road lined with begging cripples. Forgive me, I say in tears. No, he says, also in tears. Near dawn, he sighs, tucks in the parts of his body that have been gradually leaking out over the course of the night, pats my neck with his cold little palm and tells me to have a nice day. Then he fades, producing farts with a wet hand under his armpit. Simone sleeps through the whole thing, making little puppy sounds and pushing her hair against my front to remind me even in her sleep of how long it's been. But you try it. You kill a nice little kid via neglect and then enjoy having sex. If you can do it, you're demented. Simone's an innocent victim. Sometimes I think I should give her her space and let her explore various avenues so her personal development won't get stymied. But I could never let her go. I've loved her too long. Once in high school, I waited three hours in a locker room in the girls' locker room to see her in her panties. Every part of me cramped up, but when she finally came in and showered, I resolved to marry her. We once dedicated a whole night to pretending I was a house invader who tied her up. In my shorts, I stood outside our sliding glass door shouting, Meet her man! At dawn or so, I made us eggs, but was so high on her, I ruined our only pan by leaving it on the burner while I kept running back and forth to look at her nude. What I'm saying is, we go way back. I hope she'll wait this thing out. If only Clive could resume living and start dating some nice-smelling cheerleader who has no idea who Benny Goodman is, then I'd regain my strength and win her back. But no. Instead, I wake at night, and Simone's either looking over at me with hatred or whisking her privates with her index finger while thinking of God knows who, although I doubt very much it's me. At noon next day, a muscle man shows up with four beehives on a dolly. This is Leon's stroke of genius for the Kuiper wedding. The Kuipers are the natural type. They don't want to eat anything that ever lived or buy any product that even vaguely supports notorious third world regimes. They ask that we run a check on the ultimate source of our tomatoes and our ketchup and the union status of the group that makes our floaties. They've opted to recite their vows in the waterfall grove. They've hired a blind trumpeter to canoe by and a couple of illegal aliens to retrieve the rice so no birds will choke. At ten, Leon arrives, proudly bearing a large shrimp-shaped serving vat full of bagels coated with fresh honey. Over the weekend, he studied honey extraction techniques at the local library. He's always calling himself a renaissance man, but the way he says it rhymes with rent-a-dance fan. He puts down the vat and takes off the lid. Just then, the bride's grandmother falls out of her chair and rolls down the bank. She stops face up at the water's edge and her wig tips back. One of the rice retrievers wanders up and addresses her as Senora. I look around. I'm the nearest host. According to the manual, I'm supposed to initiate CPR or FACES stiff payroll deduction. The week I took the class, this dummy was on the fritz, of course. I straddle her and timidly start chest pumping. I can feel her bra clasp under the heel of my hand. Nothing happens. I keep waiting for her to throw up on me or come to life. 
Then Leon vaults over the shrimp-shaped vat. He shoos me away, checks her pulse, and begins the Heimlich maneuver. When your victim is elderly, he says loudly and remonstratively, it's natural to assume heart attack. Natural, but in this case, possibly deadly. After a few more minutes of Heimlich, he takes a pen from his pocket and drives it into her throat. Almost immediately, she sits up and readjusts her wig, with the pen still sticking out. Leon kisses her forehead and makes her lie back down, then gives the thumbs up. The crowd bursts into applause. I sneak off and sit for about an hour on the floor of the control hut. I keep hoping it'll blow up or a nuclear war will just start so I'll die, but I don't die, so I go over and pick up my wife. Leon wants to terminate me, but Simone has a serious chat with him about our mortgage and he lets me stay in the towel distribution and collection. Actually, it's a relief. Nobody can get hurt. The worst that could happen is maybe a yeast infection. It's a relief until I go to his office one day with the usage statistics and hear moans from inside and hide behind a soda machine until Simone comes out looking flushed and happy. I want to jump out and confront her, but I don't. Then Leon comes out and I want to jump out and confront him, but I don't. What I do is wait behind the soda machine until they leave, then climb out a window and hitchhike home. I get a ride from a guy who sells and services Zambonis. He tells me to confront her forcefully and watch her fall to pieces. If she doesn't fall to pieces, I should beat her. When I get home, I confront her forcefully. She doesn't fall to pieces. Not only does she not deny it, she says it's going to continue no matter what. She says I've been absent too long. She says there's more to Leon than meets the eye. I think of beating her, and my heart breaks. I give up on everything. Clive shows up at ten. As he keeps me awake, telling me what his senior prom would have been like, Simone calls Leon's name in her sleep and mutters something about his desk calendar leaving a paper cut on her neck. Clive follows me into the kitchen, wanting to know what a nosegay is. Outside, all the corn in the cornfield is bent over and blowing. The moon comes up over delectable videos, like a fat man withdrawing himself from a lake. I fall asleep at the counter. The phone rings at three. It's Clive's father, saying he's finally shaken himself from his stupor and is coming over to kill me. I tell him I'll leave the door open. Clive's been in the bathroom, imagining himself some zits. Even though he's one of the undead, I have a lot of affection for him. When he comes out, I tell him he'll have to go, and that I'll have to see him tomorrow. He whines a bit, but finally fades away. His dad pulls up in a land cruiser and gets out with a big gun. He comes through the door in an alert posture and sees me sitting on the couch. I can tell he's been drinking. I don't hate you, he says, but I can't have you living on this earth while my son isn't. I understand, I say. Looking sheepish, he steps over and puts the gun to my head. The sound of our home's internal ventilation system is suddenly wondrous. The mole on his cheek possesses grace. Children would have been nice. I close my eyes and wait. Then I urinate myself. Then I wait some more. I wait and wait and wait. Then I open my eyes. He's gone, and the front door is wide open. Jesus, I think. Embarrassing. I wet myself and was ready to die. Then I go for a brisk walk. I hike into the hills and sit in a graveyard. The stars are blinking like cat's eyes and burned blood is pouring out of the slaughterhouse chimney. My crotch is cold with pee in the breeze. 
The moon goes behind a cloud and six pale forms start down from the foothills. At first I think they're ghosts, but they're only starving pronghorn come down to lick salt from the headstones. I sit there, trying to write Simone off. No more guys ogling her in public, and no more dippy theories on world hunger. Then I think of her and Leon watching the test pattern together, nude and sweaty, and I moan and double over with dread, and a doe bolts away in alarm. A storm rolls in over the hills, and a brochure describing a portrait offer gets plastered across my chest. Lightning strikes the slaughterhouse flagpole, and the antelopes scatter like minnows as the rain begins to fall. And finally, having lost what was to be lost, my torn and black heart rebels, saying enough already, enough. This is as low as I go.